by the enormous swimming pool of the Hotel Biltmore. Twenty-six young, dark-skinned women lie in tiny bikinis. like mermaids on the shore and I bound for Ithaca just sail on by looking for you Penelope to tell the tale how this whole Trojan war just gave me the willies <laughs> the pointlessness of it so I set sail having paid off Homer and left Achilles in his tent and caught a favorable wind and stopped here at the hotel to recompute my route and found 26 young dark-skinned women their breasts displayed like fresh fruit <laughs> thanks but no thanks they only want a tan. You, my dear, love a story. So I'm your man. You made crusty bread rolls filled with chunks of brie and minced garlic drizzled with olive oil and baked them until the brie was bubbly and we ate them lovingly our legs coiled together under the table and salmon and dill with lemon and whole wheat couscous <laughs> baked with fresh ginger and garlic and a hill of green beans and carrots roasted with honey and tofu it was beautiful, the candles, the linen, the silver, the sun shining down on our northern street. Me with my hand on your leg, you my lover. <laughs> In your jeans and green t-shirt and beautiful bare feet. How simple life is. We buy a fish, we are fed. We sit close to each other, we talk, and then we go to bed. Whoa, 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 whoa. I've been writing sonnets lately, 14 line poems in iambic pentameter. I write them because no one else does. And the beautiful thing about sonnets is that sometimes 14 lines are all we have to say. Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
My eyes get misty when I think of Julie Christie. If a man wished to be kissed, he would want it to be her lips. I love you truly, my darling Julie. You'd make a king of foolie, would launch a thousand ships. And now you are turning 66. Time is still playing its cruel little tricks. I still see you walking through the snow, looking for your lover, Dr. Zhivago. In the bad old days of long ago, as the Tsar and Tsarina and the bourgeois go, off to the Gulag Archipelago. Let's find a hotel in downtown Chicago. The secret of a long career is to keep going and never fade and not think about your reputation even for one minute. It's like becoming the tallest boy in the sixth grade. You stick around and you're bound to win it. Dostoevsky over time found a punishment to fit the crime and slowly as a centipede trots off he wrote the brothers Karamazov. <laughs> Mrs. Joyce cried out in blisses, finally finished with Ulysses. James had a smoke and took a break and started in on Finnegan's wake. So do your work, keep going straight ahead. And you can be a genius someday after you are dead. I could recite the 87 counties of Minnesota, but I will not be a challenge for any signer. It's a terrific signer. It's good to have her with us on stage. It's been a day. Oh, it started out in Kilkenny. The Irish, how they do celebrate late into the night below the windows of your hotel room. 3.30, 4 in the morning, they're still out there singing Whack Fall the Diddle-O or something. <laughs> so you get up at 5, you drive into Dublin, you go through security, it takes you about 45 minutes, and your plane left 60 seconds before. They're not forgiving of this sort of mistake in Ireland. They are proper people. And so you have to fly Kafka Air. 
This takes the better part of a day. And you go by way of London, and then you collect your bags, and then you catch a flight to Edinburgh. And you walk out on stage with your luggage <laughs> to do a show for very nice people. Well, if you were young, this would be terribly upsetting. This would just overturn your day. But if you're of a certain age, it's not the worst thing that ever happened. <laughs> you can think of worse. And so you gain perspective on life. I think back when I've had a mishap with, a, with, with airline flight, I think back to my Aunt Evelyn, who was brave and adventurous, especially after Uncle Jack died. She married him in Chicago, where he'd gone for naval training in the spring of 1942, and she was there for nurses' training. He was a dark Norwegian. This appealed to her for reasons she could not later remember. He was sure that he would die in the Great War, and he convinced her that he would. And so she felt it her duty to offer comfort to an American fighting man about to give his life for his country, which back then required that you get married. So they did, and they had a couple of weeks of comfort before he went off to the Pacific campaign and returned, <laughs> to her surprise. And then the real wars began. Long, protracted warfare, which lasted for years and years until she finally kicked him out because he developed alcohol as a major hobby. She sent him off to live in his hunting shack out north of the lake. Lake Wobegon is what I'm talking about. It's where I grew up. It's out in the middle of America. You've never been there. You haven't missed much. It's just in the big flat place out in the middle. When you fly from New York to Los Angeles, as undoubtedly you've done, you've seen it down below, flat, rectangular lines, fields of corn, soybeans. That's where I'm from. Uncle Jack was a reprobate, an infidel. As I say, a reprobate. What, a man who checked his watch or what? Huh? No, he was a man who was an unbeliever. And so he plunged himself into the murky depths of alcohol. Nonetheless, I loved him, though he did bad things to good people and tormented my aunt, whom I loved as well. I loved him. He saved my life once. We were camping, Boy Scouts, January, 40 below zero, in a tent, all heaped up like sled dogs, 
in our little sleeping bags. And I had to pee so bad. I lay there, my breath billowing out of my mouth in a sort of bluish moonlight, weighing my options, finally extricated myself from the pile and walked out across the frozen tundra through a birch grove and down a ravine and over a rise, <laughs> having come from modest people. I walked a ways away. Now, when you are that age, 13, 14 years old, your bladder is a powerful instrument. You can skip this part if you want. I can just pull a shade. You expel water from you in an arc that goes about 12 or 13 feet. <laughs> it comes out of you steaming hot. And when it lands on the, on the snow, 12 feet away, it is turned to ice chips. This is fascinating when you're that age. And you write your name. <laughs> way off there in the distance, you write your name in the snow and write a few additional thoughts. And then you start to wonder how far up the arc the ice might come. And then you stop. I lost track of where I was and might have frozen to death out there, but Uncle Jack was skiing back to his hunting shack from the sidetrack tap and singing a vulgar song, and I heard it coming through the pine trees. He sang, roll me over in the clover, roll me over, lay me down and do it again. Hey, hey. To be saved by a sinner and a drunk singing a vulgar song opens the world up for you <laughs> in a way. And I loved him. He took me fishing at 4 o'clock in the morning one day. The mists out on the lake and, and mysterious and beautiful on a summer morning at 4 in the morning. It was the end of his day. It was the beginning of mine. And there we met. We rode out into the mists and we put the minnows on our line and dropped them down. I could smell his coffee and his cigar and the flavoring that he put in his coffee and smell the mists and the summer air. And then I heard him behind me say, "'Twas many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And this maiden lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. She was a child and I was a child in this kingdom by the sea. But we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee. A love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And that was the reason why years ago in the kingdom by the sea, 
A wind came out of a cloud, chilling and killing my Annabelle Lee, so that her high-born kinsmen came and bore her away from me and shut her up in a sepulcher in a tomb by the boundless sea. We loved with a love that was greater than those far older than we, than many far wiser than we. And so neither angel in heaven above nor demon down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. For the stars never beam without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And the moon does not rise, but I see the bright eyes of my beautiful Annabelle Lee. So all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my love and my bride in her sepulcher by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. It was a poem from my Aunt Evelyn, I'm sure, who had shut him up in his sepulcher in his hunting shack. I rode the boat back to the dock. I got out. I was supposed to tie it up to the post, but forgot. He walked up the beam of the boat and stepped up on the mid-seat and then stepped way over to the dock as the boat gently drifted away <laughs> and hung there in the sky like a planet, like a moon, and then dropped into the water up to his armpits and did not curse, waded to shore, took off his pants and his shirt, wrung them out, put them back on, looked at me and said, you shouldn't go fishing if you're afraid of getting wet. <laughs> Good advice will serve you well the rest of your life. He died on a January afternoon. He was on his way to the sidetrack tap and he saw his old enemy, Mr. Berge, coming towards him with whom he'd been carrying on an argument for years. Both of them forgot what it was about, only that they believed deeply in whatever their side was. And they cursed each other in Norwegian, which is rich in insult. Two old men shrieking at each other on a bitterly cold January day, and my uncle felt the pain in his chest and reached out and grabbed the parking meter. There's only one in our town. They just put up one as an experiment and uh, <laughs> never worked out. And uh, his last words on earth, I can't think of another way to say this. Um, his last words were, you've got shit for brains. <laughs> exactly. And... Uh, <laughs> 
he fell down dead on the ice. Mr. Berge leaned down. He said, you go to hell, he said, and then saw this might be the case. And, and he called the sheriff. The sheriff called the constables. They called the ambulance. The fire department got into it. The coroner came. Red and blue flashing lights and walkie-talkies, radios going off, yellow plastic ribbon around the scene. This scene of crisis that my uncle enjoyed so much in his life and to, and to miss out on this <laughs> and to miss out on it by just 15 minutes. <laughs> my Aunt Evelyn, after he died, went off and lived a free life. She was gone for long periods of time. She was 75. We didn't dare ask her where she was going. She was a good Lutheran woman. She went off, and if she could have, she would have had a police escort with sirens. <laughs> but in Lake Wobegon, you don't need that. You just drive as fast as you want, and people will get out of your way. Or maybe that's Uncle Jack. Maybe he's not dead. Maybe he's just being taken to the hospital. Well, let's just say he's dead. The story requires that he be dead. She went off traveling around and seeing whom she wished and not telling anybody about it. In Lake Wobegon, you don't travel for the pleasure of it. You travel to see your relatives. You have to have a purpose, and that's your first purpose. Unless you're to be an evangelistic missionary and go stand on street corners and sing just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. You've got your choice, one or the other. <laughs> she went off for fun, and we never knew where until she died when she was 84. On a summer night, she came home from the Moonlight Bay Supper Club, having had a Singapore sling and the deep-fried walleye <laughs> and the potatoes au gratin, the rhubarb strawberry pie, <laughs> whipped cream on top, little maraschino cherry. She came home and was never seen again till her daughter Barbara came in the house at 10 the next morning. Barbara, who had developed a creme de cacao problem, <laughs> which became a Bailey's Irish cream problem. She put it on her cornflakes in the morning, added it to her coffee. Late in the morning, she'd start making maudlin phone calls to relatives in the days before caller ID. So you were just helpless. You were just roadkill for her. She walked into the house and she knew something was wrong. She saw her mother lying on the bed looking up at the ceiling. She said, mother, and her mother didn't move. And she panicked and she jumped back. She went into the kitchen. She remembered that mother kept a bottle of Kahlua 
up in the high cavern and got that down and got a jelly glass down and filled it up to the third fish and drank that. <laughs> Went in and sat by her mother's side, burst into tears, reached into the top drawer of the bedside table for a Kleenex and there found on onion skin paper typed on Evelyn's Olympic electric, her last wishes. She wanted no funeral as such, no sermon, no scripture, no prayers, no hymns. She wanted her body to be laid out in the green beaded dress that Raul had given her the week they spent in Reno, Nevada. <laughs> Raul, we'd never heard of a Raul. She wanted her body cremated and the ashes to be deposited in a hole carved out of a green bowling ball and the bowling ball to be dropped into the end of Lake Wobegon down where she and the late Jack used to fish for crappies. The only music she wanted was Andy Williams singing Moon River. She'd seen him at a club in Reno, Nevada. Well, it was the sort of letter you should have just burned. She had the satisfaction of writing it. That's good enough for her. Put her in a box, put her up on the hill with the others, let her talk to them for a while. But Barbara was flying high on Kahlua and Bailey's Irish cream. And she called her son Kyle in engineering school in Minneapolis and read him the letter. And he said, we're going to do it exactly the way grandma wants. He had just made a 30-foot parasail for his course in aeronautical engineering. We're going to fly grandma in the bowling ball out over the lake <laughs> and drop her in from a great height. He said, so that was the plan for this Saturday in August on which, unbeknownst to us, Debbie Detmer was going to be married aboard a pontoon boat. We don't talk to the Detmer family. They don't talk to us. It's an old feud. It goes back generations. And Debbie had been living in California. She'd gone out there in search of herself and driven out there by her boyfriend, Craig, who she then dropped. And she joined a group called the Rainbow Family, <clears throat> which lived in yurts and believed in the holiness of animals and small children. And uh, was led by a woman named Starflower Moonbright. The women in the Rainbow Family split off to form a feminist caucus called Sisters of Sisterhood of the Sacred Spirit. And they met 
whenever the planets were right in a park and milled together in a big circle and the ones on the outside moved clockwise and the ones on the inside moved counterclockwise holding up a cigarette lighter or later a cell phone as symbol of illumination of the spirit and humming a note and when all of the individual notes came together in a harmonic convergence Starflower Moonbright dinged a little bell and they all went home. It was a theology that consisted entirely of hope. But through the sisterhood, Debbie met a woman named Doris who had invented veterinary aromatherapy. The treatment of dogs and cats with eucalyptus, hyacinth, little compresses, little sachets, tea, and so forth, which was very lucrative. You discover that with pet owners, there is no such thing as overcharging. <laughs> and Debbie had inherited the business when Doris passed in a tragic road accident on Highway 1, this winding, curving road up high above, on a cliff above the Pacific, north of San Francisco, uphill and down, a narrow, curving road, and driving along in her Mercedes, a seagull came gliding in over the car and flew just in front of the hood ornament, its wings slowly flapping mesmerizing her as it seemed to lead her around the curves and up the hill and around the bend. And then, for reasons known only to itself, it veered off to the west <laughs> and led her into the next life. <laughs> Debbie Detmer took over the business and met a young man named Brent who was in her yoga class and who seemed to be heterosexual, at least for the time being. And <laughs> So she planned to marry him on a pontoon boat here in Lake Wobegon. Because water and fire are the sacred elements of the sisterhood, they were going to be married on the water, on the pontoon boat, which has a barbecue in the stern. <laughs> so you had red-hot coals and the fire element, and for an additional fire element, they brought in... Craig, the ex-boyfriend, who was now a hot air balloonist, and he was going to come in in his hot air balloon and pick them up off the deck after their vows had been said. Not a wedding, exactly. A, a celebration of commitment was what it was called. They had a banner made to, to stretch across the, the, the boat, celebration of commitment. And she wanted to have a feast to show people she'd done well, so she flew in boxes of fresh, frozen, giant shrimp shish kebab from San Francisco, and wheels of imported cheese, and, and, and cases of Moe champagne, expensive champagne, to have a feast on shore for the people on the dock in town. As they said their vows, she and Brent and Starflower Moonbright on the 22-foot pontoon boat. And then she decided to add something from her childhood for good luck and another water element. She decided to add two giant ducks. <laughs> the sons of Canute 
years ago bought 18-foot-long hollow-body fiberglass duck decoys <laughs> in which the hunter rides inside the duck <laughs> and looks out, pedals his little pedal and turns a propeller and looks out through a periscope to see incoming mergansers. And when he sees them, then he kicks out a trapdoor under the duck's tail and blasts away from there. They were sort of tippy. They, even in a light swell, they rocked to and fro, so you became nauseated looking at clouds in a periscope screen, so they were never used for hunting, but they would still float. And she painted them up, two of them, and had the Inkvist twins ready to petal them and strew flower blossoms out the trapdoors. This was all set to go the Saturday that the green bowling ball was to be dropped from the 30-foot parasail. The wedding got called off. Brent arrived in town in an ill humor. Cell phone coverage has always been poor, and internet access is dial-up and works half the time at best. He was irritable, and then when he heard about the ex-boyfriend Craig and his hot air balloon being part of this ceremony, he hit the ceiling. He said, you couldn't have found somebody you haven't had a relationship with to pilot a hot air balloon? She said, darling, I'm not going to start our life together in an atmosphere of jealousy and mistrust. And he said, okay, then don't. <laughs> and walked out. Well, she was brokenhearted for about six hours. But she's from California, and these people live in the moment. And pretty soon that moment was passed. And she was looking forward to the next moment. And she left. Left her parents with all of this stuff. Well, they agonized over it because it was too expensive to throw away. But you couldn't offer people you knew French champagne. What would they think you thought you were? They worried about this whole sleepless night and then donated all of it to the Lake Wobegon Lutheran Church, <laughs> which accepted it as divine grace, God moving in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Because they'd been worried for weeks what to do about 24 Lutheran pastors who were coming on a tour of Minnesota from Chicago sent by their bishop as a punishment for showing Unitarian tendencies. <laughs> they were sent on a bus up to rural Minnesota to find out where Lutherans come from. And that was who got off that yellow school bus on this Summer Saturday in Lake Wobegon, 24 heavyset men, a lot of earth tones going on, and uh, sandals, and uh, uh, turtlenecks, uh, uh, medallions hanging around their necks, some crosses, uh, some fish, some uh, aboriginal things, kind of poofy hair, uh, uh, sailor caps. Uh, they got down off the bus, blinking in the sunlight, and here was Pastor Inquist, and here was a 
pontoon boat pulled up to the dock with a big banner that said celebration of commitment. <laughs> Meant for them. <laughs> Pastor Inkvich said, uh, come ashore, we're happy to have you here and uh, I, I have to go down to a memorial service for a parishioner just down the way, but I'll be done in about half an hour and uh, help yourself to this cheese. And, uh, and he opened up a few uh, bottles of Moe champagne and, uh, and the, the giant shrimp shish kebab were roasting already on the barbecue in the stern of the pontoon boat. And some of them got aboard the boat and others stood along the dock and cut the cheese, so to speak, and, uh, and uh, opened the champagne and it was terrific champagne. So much better than you ever could have expected in this little tank town, this little one-horse dusty town in Nowheresville, America. Meanwhile, down at the end of the lake, the procession was making its way from Barbara's house, led by Kyle in his red Speedo swim trunks, <laughs> carrying his 30-foot red parasail on his shoulder, making his way with his friends, his friend Dwayne at the controls of the speedboat out on the water, and the tow rope and the water skis on shore, Barbara walking along in her navy blue knit dress, carrying the green bowling ball in her arms, and Raul was there. A man of indeterminate age, uh, <laughs> hair dyed kind of a blue-black, uh, like Superman's. Uh, he, he might have been pushing 80, he might have been pulling it. We weren't <laughs> sure. He wore a Hawaiian shirt and, and yellow plaid golf pants and, and, and two-toned shoes and, and smoking a wine-soaked cigar and tinted glasses. and wore this amazing jacket of many colors, looked like it had been made from the skins of rainbow trout, <laughs> and carrying a boombox in his hand. Down to the shore they went, and Kyle harnessed himself into the trapeze under the parasail and secured the tow rope to the trapeze so as to leave his hands free he drilled a hole in the bowling ball and put a set screw in and attached a chain which he wound around a Velcro belt around his chest and it hung down between his knees. People thought that's not a good idea. But he's an engineer and uh, it's hard to instruct these people. Dwayne at the controls was not the person you would have chosen for this job. He's extremely nearsighted and he wears glasses thick as pop bottles. And in the summer when the sun is high, he wears a long billed cap so as to prevent a, a ray of sun from hitting a lens and drilling a hole deep into his, into his cerebellum. Though that might help, actually. <laughs> but it's his boat, so he gets to drive it. He got the tow rope all, and he got into the skis and he had the, had the green bowling ball hanging down there. And he 
waded out into the water up to his thighs and, and, and was all set to go. Now, meanwhile, in town, the Lutherans were on their second glass of wine and feeling no pain when they smelled a horrible smell and turned and saw this enormous beast walking up the dock towards them. Our old fishing dog, an old Labrador dog, formerly, formerly, formerly blonde and now kind of a mildewed yellow, fungus-ridden teeth falling out, eyes all roomy. This dog who, who had the tragic life of having had an enormous success when he was a pup and having f caught a walleye between his jaws wading in the water made such a fuss over, he had been trying to repeat this for 13 years, <laughs> wading in the water, trying to catch another fish, could never do it. Only fish he could find were the ones who'd been floating on the water for a long time. <laughs> he smelled so bad, you could see stink rays coming up from him. <laughs> and Lutherans, being gentle people, unable to rebuke anybody or anything, retreated in the face of this enormous evil creature, all of them got aboard the boat. 24 hefty men on a 22-foot pontoon boat with a barbecue in the stern. It sank to such a degree that when the last one stepped aboard, he felt water slosh in his sandals. They cast off the line and started up the motor thinking momentum would save them and pushed away from the dock, riding so low in the water that to people on shore, this looked like a genuine miracle out of scripture. It looked like the 12 apostles and their best friends walking on the Sea of Galilee. Off they went. Meanwhile, Kyle gave the signal to Duane and he put the gas to it and pulled away and up on skis he came with the bowling ball hanging down, <laughs> harnessed into the trapeze under the 30-foot red parasail and went speeding around that end of the lake. He was going at high speed and make, made a big turn and still had not gotten up off the water. We figured he must have misadjusted the aileron, something was wrong. He went f by and still had not and then, then Dwayne put the pedal to the metal and was really tearing around that end of the lake. We watched, worried, and then two giant ducks came out of <laughs> an inlet. Two giant ducks with flower petals coming out of their butts. <laughs> and the boat swerved to avoid them, and then it swerved again to avoid 24 men walking on water. He put the boat almost up on its side and centrifugal force swung that bowling ball to one side and Kyle lost his balance. He came off the skis, fell in the water, but was harnessed to the trapeze and to the tow rope and could not cut himself loose. And so he was towed at high speed, submerged. We saw him come by us like a dolphin in the water. He came by us and we could see the force of the water tear the Velcro belt and the green bowling ball and the red swim trunks <laughs> from his body and then he rose into the air <laughs> and flew a naked man flying. <laughs> when had we seen this before? Never. 
like something out of Greek mythology, the flight of Icarus. He flew naked, flew naked the length and people waving to Dwayne to, to stop, to bring it in. Now the wake of the speedboat had rocked that pontoon boat and the Lutherans clung to the rails and would have hung on, but that barbecue tipped over. And big red coals came skittering across the deck like something out of the book of Revelations, which they hadn't believed in up till then. So they pitched over the side as the naked man flew overhead. It was a revelatory moment. We didn't want to watch him fr frontally, so we all turned to our right just in time to see the hot air balloon come in over the trees, making its descent towards the pontoon boat, looking for the couple who were to be married. A beautiful blue-green silk bag and the rigging and the wicker basket and the man in the sailor whites and the burner making their descent as the naked man came flying towards them on a, on a collision course, neither of them able to steer to avoid the other. The balloonist did the only thing he could do, and he cranked the flame all the way up, but overshot the mark so that the flame burst through the tip of the bag. The silk caught on fire. The, the, the rigging burned through. The man, the basket, the burner dropped into the water. Big pieces of burning silk flying through the air as the naked man flew towards, towards it, th throwing his weight to one side at the last minute, just avoiding it. We saw the cloud in the air where he emptied his bowels and flew <laughs> on. And now we heard Andy Williams singing. Moon River, wider than a mile, I'm crossing you in style someday. People waving to Dwayne to bring it in, bring it in, bring it in. And finally he looked up and saw his friend naked flying through the air. He made a sharp turn and came in, but came in too high across the sandbar, which had been a dry summer, and he sheared the pin on the motor, and the boat ground to a stop, and the tow rope snapped, and the man on the parasail came gliding in over our heads. We all looked down at the ground to see his shadow passing like <laughs> Batman. He cleared the spruce trees and landed in the raspberry bushes. Barbara said, just let him work it out himself. Just He's a big boy now. You never want to rush to help a naked man. Give him time. We helped the Lutherans out of the water, and we helped Craig out with his basket and the burner and consoled him and got the Inkvis twins out of those giant ducks. And we, Somebody stepped on a chain and pulled, and in came the green bowling ball. And then we heard singing or something. It was the naked man coming down through the spruce trees. He'd found a rhubarb leaf to cover himself with. He came down chanting or something. We couldn't make out the words and then realized he was sobbing about wanting to give his life to the Lord and repent of his sins. Evidently something about flying naked over the town 
had really moved him. He walked towards us sobbing in repentance and knelt down in front of Pastor Inkfist and then prostrated himself so that we were <laughs> horrified. We all turned to the side. We're Lutherans. Lutherans don't do this, you see. Lutherans are a self-contained, modest. We do not make a public show of things, not even our faith. We, we don't, we're not Baptists, you see. We're not charismatics, God knows. Uh, we're, 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 we're not Church of Christ. We're not any of those. We don't, we don't have big revival meetings in the Lutheran church. We don't have meetings where the, where the choir sings and you're supposed to come forward like at Billy Graham rallies and come down and kneel down front. We don't do that in the Lutheran. You're supposed to take care of this on your own time, you see. Just sit, just stay where you are. Just sit until the end and then go downstairs and have coffee. See if that doesn't make you feel better. If not, volunteer for something. Go, go coach girls basketball or take, take meals to sick people. Go visit the elderly, but don't, don't do this. We were embarrassed for him. Pastor Inquist put a hand on his shoulder. He said, Kyle, it's all right. And Kyle was even more emotional. And then we smelled this horrible smell of degradation and decay. And we knew what it was. So we made a path for him. And our fishing dog... Bruno came down out of the spruce trees carrying a gift in his mouth. And when he saw the naked man prostrate, he dropped the gift and approached him from behind and greeted him as dogs have so often greeted people. And the feeling of that cold, wet nose on that exact part of the body more decorous than I would have expressed it but he leaped up woo wow we found dry clothes for the Lutherans we had Evelyn in the bowling ball. We took up a collection for Craig to fix his hot air balloon. Kyle felt better after that. And so, when I have a little mishap <laughs> in the Dublin airport this morning, I think back on Aunt Evelyn's memorial service. And it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Thanks to my signer. Thank you very much. Are there any questions? <laughs> anything you need to know that I know anything about? 
It's okay if you don't. I don't, I don't mind silence. <laughs> I love silence. Well, how much can happen to you when you're 80-some years old and you've lost the great love of your life? You, uh, you become a storyteller, I guess. You're probably not going to repeat that adventure. Life, um, life does have uh, diminishing possibilities as you get older, whether we like this or not. And this means that when you were young, young people, you should have your big adventures and make your big mistakes and have your crises when you are young. Don't postpone your crisis until midlife. <laughs> you can hurt a lot of people uh, when your life goes chaotic in your 40s or 50s. Do that in your 20s. And then you can make a story out of it. And you'll have this story of your adventurous uh, 20s and 30s. And uh, as time goes by and memories dim, uh, you'll be able to work on that story and improve that story <laughs> and uh, really make it into something. All right? Yes, yes, sir. Uh, a, man is, a gentleman is teaching a course in storytelling at the University of Massachusetts and wonders what advice I would have for young storytellers. There's only one um, uh, piece of advice to, to give, and that is that you have to go out and live and let things happen to you. Uh, there's no point in telling stories if, you've, uh, if you haven't uh, had any adventure and, and you've never taken chances unless you are so fortunate as to know other people who are adventurous and, uh, and, you've got a, and you've got a good account from them. No, the writers, young writers or storytellers or whoever they are, you have to go out and live your life. That's your, that's your first step. I wish I had. I, I... <laughs> All sorts of things I wish I'd done, but it's too late for me, but it's not too late for them. Okay, one more question or or half a question and I'll, I'll do half an answer. Mm, yes, yes. I'm quite sure you can fit something in a bit of adventurous. If you were doing thesis 2010, what would be your ambition for the next year? If this were 2010? Yes, going into next year, you can plan it now. Oh, I see. What is my big ambition for 2010? Yes. You're, you're serious. <laughs> yeah, I am. You'd like to end the, 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 the evening on a note of, of truthfulness, or...? Yeah, go on. Why not? Huh? Should I? You tell well, me what I you want. Well, I won't know if it's huh? true or not, will I? So go for it. Oh, well, that's a good point. That's a good point. Well, I'll be truthful. Um, my ambition is to make another movie, and um, so I'm working on a, uh, a movie, uh, a, a screenplay, and uh, so I'm trying to get um, uh, things lined up because I had such a great time making the movie with uh, Mr. Altman, and though he's gone, uh, I, um, 
I'm sure other people can be found uh, to do what he did uh, somehow. And, and I, I, I really like it. I'm a writer, and writers lead a lonely life. Uh, it's a good life. I'm not complaining about it. But um, late in life, I discovered uh, the world of, of performing. Um, America on the front line of defense. <laughs> I discovered the world of performing in which you work with other people and they're so nice, actors and actresses, and they kiss and they hug. And, uh, and, I, really, and I really crave that. That's why I started my radio show in the first place, was to have a social life. Um, writers do not socialize easily. We do not have social skills. Um, that's why we become writers. And, uh, and so that's my, that's my goal for the next year, is to write a screenplay and get a movie production going in which I will not have to act, in which I will get to just be there, and beautiful younger women will occasionally come up and embrace me. That's it. A hand for Joan. <laughs>